Well, God is going to call us now to a time of fellowship, and he continues to lead us from his, from his word. Ascribe strength to God. His majesty is over Israel, and his strength is in the skies. Oh God, you are awesome from your sanctuary. The God of Israel himself gives strength and power to the people. Blessed be God. Brothers and sisters, as we turn now to the preaching of God's word, realize that indeed he has blessed us and he's blessing us now as you listen to his word. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Mark. We were in Mark last week, in God's providence, we're going to be in Mark again this week. I turned right to it, Mark chapter 5. I guess I've been in this text and my Bible wants to go here. But uh, at, at home, anytime we do a devotion, if someone turns right to the hymn, it's a big deal. So I turned right to the passage this morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 20. So please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5 verses 1 through 20, and please stand with me as we read God's word together. So Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, hear the word of God. It says, They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had his dwelling among the tombs. No one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains, and gnashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him, And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine, so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about two thousand of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man, and all about the swine, and they began to implore him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him, and he did not let him. But he said to him, Go home to your people, and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you, and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone 
was amazed. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Oh, Father, this is your word. This is your message. We pray that you would honor it this day, that you would be with me as I seek to expound this passage to your people. Father, that you would be with them, that you would be the great shepherd, that you would be the one to feed the souls of your sheep this day, that you would wed this passage to their needs and their life this day. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. This is a well-known passage. I'm sure that many of us are familiar with it. In the course of our Bible study, in the course of our reading, we've come across the story of Jesus and the demoniac. It occurs in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So it's a story that, that we are familiar with. But if someone were to ask you, what's the main point of the story? What would you say? What is this story all about? What should we glean from this passage as we look at it this morning? Is it a story that's primarily about demon possession or demons? Is it a story about exorcism? Is it a story about rejection of Christ or evangelism? Is it a story about pigs? What is the main point of the the passage before us today? You know, we often joke that in Sunday school, if you don't know the answer, what should you answer, right? If if you're in Sunday school, you don't know the answer, there's a pretty good chance that if you say Jesus, that you're going to get the question right. And that's true in the passage before us today, that this is a passage about Jesus Christ. Certainly it speaks about uh, demons and possession and exorcism and pigs and all the rest, and we're going to treat that as we work our way through. But primarily, this is a passage about Christ. Mark tells us that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And throughout his treatment, he is, he is showing us about Christ. But what is it specifically about Christ that we should focus our attention upon this morning? Certainly it shows his power, his great power over, over the demons and, and that he's able to cast out an entire legion of demons with just a word. And you know, if I were to expound upon this passage from either Matthew or Mark, I would probably focus upon his power. Or excuse me, Matthew or Luke, I would probably focus upon his power. But Mark gives us a, a specific insight, a specific way that he wants us to look at this passage. And we see it in verse 19, where Jesus speaks to the man who had been demon-possessed, and he tells him to go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you that this is jesus's summary of the passage jesus says you want a summary of what this passage is all about this is a passage about the mercy of god it's a passage about the lord's mercy specifically the lord's mercy to deliver sinners to deliver the most miserable of sinners as we look at this man this demoniac who was clearly a man in great misery in in the life of sin and misery So that's the main point we're going to look at uh, today, family of God, that that the Lord demonstrates his great mercy to the most miserable of sinners. The Lord demonstrates his great mercy to the most miserable of sinners. We're going to look at it in three headings. You should have an outline uh, in your bulletin, so if you want to locate it, you can follow along. The headings will be the Lord's great mercy required in verses 1 through 5. This is where we're going to see the the great need for the Lord's mercy. Then we'll see the the Lord's great mercy revealed in verses 6 through 13, where Jesus demonstrates his mercy. And then the Lord's great mercy reported in verses 14 uh, through 20. 
Uh, but prior to, to jumping into passage, let's, let's get a little context here. So thus far in, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark has primarily focused on Jesus' ministry up north in Galilee, so north of the capital in Jerusalem. In and around the Sea of Galilee, uh, Jesus has already gone on a, a preaching circuit throughout the villages of Galilee. But Mark has primarily focused his attention in Capernaum, which is a, a city in Galilee on the west side of the sea. It's where Jesus had set up his, his home base, as we saw last week in, in Brian's sermon, that that healing took place in a house in Capernaum. Uh, Jesus had taught in the synagogue in Capernaum. Uh, the, the issue with his, his family trying to arrest him, if you will, happened in Capernaum. And so Mark has primarily been focused on the west side of the lake, but now we are going to see him move to the east side, that Jesus takes his trip across the Sea of Galilee, across the lake, and he's going to enter the region of the Gerasenes. He's already appointed the 12 apostles at this point, and he, prior to this, was teaching by the seaside in, in Galilee. He was teaching from a boat. He was teaching in parables, and then he told his, his disciples, let's set out, let's cross the lake, let's go to the other side. It tells us in, ver in uh, chapter 4, verse uh, 36, that there were other boats with him. So there's a small fleet crossing the sea. And it's, it's during this journey across the sea that the calming of the sea happens. It's during this journey that the great storm comes upon the disciples and they are, are close to perishing. And the Lord calms the sea. And, you know, many, many commentators note a parallel between the calming of the sea and the calming of the demoniac in the taming of the sea and the taming of the demoniac. In both cases, there is a threat that is greater than man, that is too great for man to handle. And in both cases, the men are afraid. In both cases, the Lord overcomes that threat. He tames it. He subdues it. And in both cases, it results in the men being more afraid of the Lord than they were of the original threat. And so with that running start, let's, let's now dive into our passage. They are just coming off the calming of the sea. They are just coming to the east side of the lake. And they are coming into the region, the country of the Gerasenes. And what Mark first and foremost wants us to see is the misery of this man, this demoniac. That he is a man that is in great need of the Lord's mercy. And, and the, the point of it is, look, if there is hope for him, there's hope for us. If the Lord can have mercy upon this man, he can have mercy upon us. If the Lord's power and mercy can extend to him, it can certainly extend to anything in our life. And Mark paints the picture of this man as a man in, in desperate, desperate need of the Lord's mercy, a man in, in great misery because he is in, at enmity with God, he is at enmity with man, and he is at enmity with self. These great spheres of life in which we interact i mean think about your life it it is a good summary of life that we have interaction with god we have interaction with others and we have interaction with ourself and this man was sick and unsound in all three and so let's look at the at the misery first and foremost of this man his great need for the lord's great mercy look with me again at verse uh, verse one and two i'll read a little into verse three as well it says they came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had his dwelling among the tombs. The picture that Mark is giving us here is this man is unclean. He's living in a country that is unclean, the country of the Gerasenes. 
Gerasso was a, primarily a Gentile city in the Decapolis. Mark tells us that uh, it was also close to Gadara, which was also a Greek city on the east side, primarily uh, of, of Greek culture, Greek religion after the conquest of Alexander the Great. At this time, it had been annexed by the Romans, and it is primarily a Gentile Greek area. We don't know if this man is a Gentile or not. It's possible that he was Jewish. There were Jews living on this side of the lake. There, there were uh, small Jewish populations, uh, but many of them were apostate. We see that this man was living in, a, in an unclean land and that there were pigs in close vicinity. But it also says that this man had an unclean spirit. He had a demon. So he's unclean. But besides that, he also had his dwelling among the tombs. If you recall, in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, it tells us that, that a corpse is an unclean thing, that if anyone touches a corpse, he becomes unclean and, and he cannot enter into the camp. So the picture here is that this man is unclean in so many different ways. He's not only living in an unclean land amongst unclean people who keep pigs, but he is also a man with an unclean spirit living in an unclean dwelling, in the tombs. He is, he is in all ways separated from God. If you recall that, that the idea of uncleanliness is a, is, is a ceremonial way that God taught his people the difference between holiness and commonness, between, between being clean and unclean, being inside the camp and being outside the camp. To be holy is to be in the life of God, to be within the people of God, to be within the presence of God as he dwelt among his people. To be unclean, to be unholy, to be common is to be outside, to be far from God. And so the first way that Mark shows us this man's misery and his need for Christ, his need for mercy, is to show us that he is at enmity with God, that he is separated from God. And if that weren't bad enough, he also has trouble with man, as we see in verses uh, 3 and 4. It says, And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Luke tells us that this man was from the city. At one point, he lived in the city, but now he has been driven out, away from society. He's living out in the tombs. He, he does have at least one companion, as Matthew tells us. There were there are actually two demoniacs. But we have to wonder how close a companionship could be between two demon-possessed people. So he is, he is outside of normal society, and men had sought to bind him with chains because it says that he was exceedingly violent in the Gospel of Matthew. So violent that people couldn't even pass by that way. And so they sought to lock him up. They sought to chain him up. And that's often what we do, don't we, with lunatics and, and insane people or with criminals. Because we can't reach the heart. All we can do is deal with externals. All we can do is lock people up and put chains upon them. I can recall hearing a, a, a phrase from prisoners where they would say, you can lock the lock, but you can't stop the clock. In defiance of the guards, yes, you might be able to lock the lock, but that clock's going to keep ticking. And one day my sentence is going to be up. And one day I'm going to get out and I'm going to go back to doing the exact same thing I was doing before. Your chains are powerless to, ch to change my heart. So this man is at enmity with God. He's at enmity with man. But he's also, notice, at enmity with himself. In verse 5, it says, Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gnashing himself with stones. 
constantly night and day. This man is in, in, in physical distress. He has, he's restless. He's awake in the night. He's awake in the day. I don't know if you've ever struggled with insomnia. I struggle with it. I wouldn't wish it upon my, my worst enemy. I can remember when I was a, a younger man in college, just started college, and Simone used to have insomnia, and I used to dream of it. I would say, oh, if I could just stay up all night, I could get all my homework done. I would have to lean up against the wall to read my books to get my homework done because I'd fall asleep, and I thought, what a glorious thing it would be to be, never have to sleep, just to be up all night. And oh, it's so miserable. I hate being up all night. And this man was restless in the night, he was up night and day, and it says that he was, he was screaming. And in, 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 a, a lunatic, a crazy person. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody, perhaps on the streets or, or out and about, screaming in an insanity. I've seen it. It's not a pleasant sight. So this man is restless it, it, within himself. He has no physical rest. He has no psychological rest. And it tells us also that he is gnashing himself with stones. Self-mutilation, cutting himself. Family of God, this is not simply an issue for the demon-possessed. This is something that many people struggle with, even within the church. It's something that teenagers and, and others struggle with as they come to age and they, they struggle to deal with, with life and the transition to adulthood. And you'll see people who cut themselves on their arms or cut themselves on their legs and they might not wear long pants because they don't want to show their scars or, or they'll keep them above the short line so they can still wear shorts or they'll keep them above the... the you know, the, the shirt line, so they can still wear shirts. But you'll see girls who will never wear tank tops because they've cut themselves. This is an issue, brothers and sisters. But it's not from the Lord. It's not what the Lord would have us to do. The Lord would not have us to harm ourselves. So this man is, is, is one who has distress inside. He has distress outside. And if this weren't enough, I believe it's Luke also tells us that he was naked. This was a man who had not been clothed in a very, very long time. He had lost all sense of shame as nakedness is often associated with sin and shame. And if you've ever seen someone who has plunged themselves deep into sin, there's this, there's this loss of shame where you no longer care. You have the harlot's forehead, as the, as the Bible calls it, where you no longer care what people think. You no longer care what God thinks. You're just going to let it all out there. I can remember seeing a naked man uh, restrained outside of the Malibu courthouse one time. And I, I've, I've never felt so bad for the, for the boys in blue, the men in blue, blue, as I did that day, having to restrain a naked man outside of the courthouse, a crazy person. And that's the, the picture of this demoniac. He's, he's in all ways in misery and in desperate need of the Lord's mercy. And you know, the, the enemy doesn't always drive people to this point. You know, there are many people who are in misery, who are still functioning in society. You think of a functioning alcoholic. We call a, a, a person who is addicted to the drink, who can still function in life, who can still go to work, who can still hold a job, who can still do the basic things of life. But they are bound by the drink, a, a functioning alcoholic. I know people like that. There are others who can't handle it, and the drink completely ruins their life, or drugs completely ruin their lives. And there are many who are bound by Satan, yet they're still functioning in society and they're still functioning in life. They're not as, in, externally speaking, as bad as this man, but yet they are still in desperate need of the Lord's mercy. Because in so many ways, brothers and sisters, this man represents each and every one of us. 
We might not have an unclean spirit, but by nature, each and every one of us is a slave of Satan. We might not have the legion, but each and every one of us by nature is bound by the ruler of the legion, by the ruler of the, of the demons, by the ruler of the prince and power of the air. We might not be naked. Thankfully, we are all clothed here this morning. But each and every one of us by nature is naked in the sight of God. Our sins are exposed. We're in need of the robes and the righteousness of Christ. We might not have our dwelling among the tombs, but each and every one of us by nature is dead in trespasses and sins, having our dwelling among those who are dead in trespasses and sins. We are the dead among the dead. All of us are in need of the mercy of the Lord. All of us are in need of his great mercy as this man was. And thankfully, the Lord was willing to exhibit his mercy upon this man. He's willing to exhibit his mercy to us. I mentioned the, the parallels between the account of, of the calming of the sea and the, the calming of, of these two great forces and, and the parallel between them. But there's one that I didn't mention. And that is, is that it's the parallel between the idea of mercy in both. Only Mark mentions mercy here in this passage. And only Mark mentions mercy in the calming of the sea. Only Mark is the one who says that the disciples asked him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus, don't you care that we're perishing? Don't you care that the waves are crashing upon us and our boat is about to sink? Jesus, don't you care that my husband is addicted to gambling and he's squandering all of, all of our wealth? Don't you care that my son or my daughter is addicted to drugs? Don't you care? Don't you care that my life is falling apart? Don't you care that I'm bound to sin? That my life is falling apart? That I'm in misery in all these different ways? And the answer is a resounding yes, the Lord cares. He delivered the disciples from the sea. He delivered the demoniac here. You know, we... we we often give the definition of, of, of grace and mercy, that grace is unmerited favor and, you know, giving somebody what they don't deserve and mercy is not giving somebody what they do deserve. And I think another good definition of mercy is, is pity in distress. One of the words in, in the Hebrew Bible for mercy that is uh, uh, translated with the Greek word that is here before us today is related to the same Hebrew word for the womb. That the, 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 the motherly care, that it, it, it pains a mother to see their child in distress. It pains a mother to hear their child crying. That they are moved within themselves to help. And that is the heart of God. It, 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 it moves him to see us in distress. And the, the demoniac here before us moved Christ. Moved him so much that he took a trip all the way across the sea to heal this man. Look, I don't know if Jesus had other business here in, in the country of the Gerasenes, but practically speaking, he did nothing else but come, heal the man, and leave. Yes, they asked him to leave. I don't know if he planned on doing some circuit in Decapolis, and, and uh, because they asked him to leave, he, he honored that and left. But practically speaking, the Lord made a special trip all the way across the sea just to heal this man. He came, he saw, he conquered, just like Julius Caesar. He came to this man, he saw this man, he conquered the legion, he delivered him from his misery and from his sin. That he left the 99 sheep on the other side of the lake, on the west side of Galilee, and he came and he delivered this man from his, from his great sin and struggle. 
And let's look now at the mercy that the Lord revealed to this man in verses 6 through 13 as he delivered him from such a formidable foe and from such a, a, a demonic destruction. Look now at, at verse, verse 6. It says, Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him, and shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So here Jesus is, he is just coming off the, the boat. He has just, just embarked upon the sea, or on, onto the shore. And this naked lunatic comes charging down upon him. Think about the disciples at this point. They probably just gained their bearings from the sea, happened to be on dry land, and now here's a, a, a lunatic charging towards them. And, and no doubt, perhaps they thought that he was going to attack them. But what does he do? He bows down. He bows down. And it's interesting that he even comes to Jesus because we see from the very next verse that the demons want nothing to do with him. They said, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? They wanted absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. That there was a great gulf between Christ and the demons. And they were asking him, what business do we have with each other? Why are you here? Have you come to torment us? Matthew adds, have you come to torment us before the time? That they begged that Jesus would not send them into the abyss. See, the demons know that there is a day appointed in which the Lord Jesus Christ will judge each and every one of them. And with a word, just as, he sent out, just as he will send out the legion, he will send each and every one of them into the lake of fire and brimstone. They know that the day is appointed. They know Christ and his power. And so they come and they bow down before him and they ask him, Why are you here? Are you here to torment us before the time? And Jesus asked them, What is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. You know, it's interesting when the demons were, were imploring and asking Jesus not to send them out. They used what is frequently noted as an exorcism formula. It's a formula that we see in, in Acts 19, where the sons of Sceva sought to uh, send out the demons. And they said, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And now here the demons try to, as it were, flip the script on Jesus. And they say, we adjure you not to punish us, not to torment us. There was something about them that they, they, they like to identify Christ. They like to say who he was to all and to seek to gain some sort of power over him by adjuring him and naming him. But the Lord will have none of it. And he asks them, no, no, what is your name? And they say, my name is Legion, for we are many. And here we see just how formidable this foe was upon this man. He had not just one spirit within him, but an entire legion of spirits. We need to be careful in seeking to number them. Yes, a Roman legion had between 4,000 and 6,000 uh, soldiers. So some will say there was between 4,000 and 6,000 legions within this man. Uh, but we should be careful because you, you can use the word legion just in the way that we use the word ton. Sometimes we'll say, I have a, a ton of this or a ton of that. It doesn't mean we have exactly 2,000 pounds of it. In the same way, you could say, I, you know, there was a legion of this or a legion of that. It just means there's a very large number. There's a host of demons within this man. But it does show the plight that this man was in. There's no way he could overcome one demon, let alone a whole host of demons within him. But it should also show us that Satan's kingdom, family of God, is organized. And Satan's kingdom is united. It is not divided. 
That is why the charge against Jesus that he was casting out demons by the ruler of demons was so absurd. And Jesus himself testified to the unity of Satan's kingdom, where he said if Satan's kingdom were divided against itself, it would fall. So we see even more so how formidable this foe is that this man was facing. He's not facing a divided enemy. He is facing a very united enemy. A whole legion with a, with a ruler over them. That there are angels and ranks, principalities and powers. That the kingdom of Satan is very much united upon the purpose of destroying the church. Upon the purpose of thwarting the work of God in this world. So we see this foe that this man is up against. But we also see the destruction that this legion was capable of. In verses 10 through 13. In verse 10, uh, the, the legion here, the, the demon speaking to Jesus, was imploring him earnestly not to be sent out of the country. It's a strange request. You don't know exactly why they didn't want to be sent out of the country. You know, perhaps because this was primarily Gentile land, they wanted to stay in this land, that it was easy for them to uh, work their temptations upon the, the Gentile people, that they had much greater ease at it than they would perhaps in, in, in Jewish land. I think the best way to understand it is they simply just didn't want to go into the abyss. They, they just, Jesus, let us stay here. Please don't send us into the abyss. They're begging Christ at this point not to torment them, not to send them into the abyss. And it tells us that there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby in the mountain. Verse 12, the demons implored him saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Again, it's hard to know why the demons wanted to go into the swine. Look, we don't know enough about the, the, the spiritual, supernatural world to, to speak with absolute certainty. There have been some good suggestions. Uh, probably the demons wanted to enter into the swine because if they could destroy the swine, it would uh, certainly hinder the ministry of Christ in, in this area, as it did, as we, as we will see, that men love money. And this was a very large herd of swine. I tried to figure it out. You know, it's hard to, to figure out values in this, but this is potentially millions of dollars worth of pork here, brothers and sisters. This is not a small thing in, in this time. This is, this is a great amount of money. And so perhaps they wanted to enter the swine so that if they could destroy the swine, they could hinder the ministry of Christ. Perhaps it was simply to uh, continue to terrorize the country and the land as they had done for so long, have one last hurrah. Well, I think it's, it's probably just because they were entirely bent on destruction that they, they loved to destroy. They wanted to destroy this man, and they, they wanted to destroy the swine. And we see that Jesus allowed them to. In verse 13, Jesus gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine. The herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and about 2,000 of them were drowned. You know, this gives a, a lot of people a lot of consternation, uh, this, this, this part of the passage. One, because we're animal lovers, and it, it seems so sad. Why do 2,000 pigs have to die? Why is it that, that, that these pigs had to die? Well, we have to remember, family of God, that on more than one occasion, Jesus told us that man is much, much more important than the animals. He told us that they're more important than the sparrows, they're more important than the sheep, and this demoniac was certainly more important than pigs. And it's demonstrated here. But the, the main problem that people have here is that it, it appears that Jesus is involved in, in destroying animals and destroying other people's property. And some people even go as far as to charge Jesus with sin here because he has destroyed what belongs to somebody else. 
And it's interesting because most of Jesus' miracles are constructive. They are meant to restore. They're meant to heal. It's only here and in the, the cursing of the fig tree that we see destruction as part of one of Christ's miracles. And there are various responses and answers to this. Family of God, it goes without saying that obviously Christ never sinned. We need to come at every passage with the, uh, with the understanding that Christ is sinless. That whatever he did here cannot be charged as sin. Some people have said, well, Jesus didn't destroy the pigs. The demons did. And I think there's truth to that. That God can use the devil and the demons for his own purposes. God, in amazing ways, can bring good out of evil. We learn that in the story of Joseph. You meant it for good. or Sorry, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The very cross of Christ is the perfect example of God bringing good out of evil. Where the men uh, uh, crucified Christ out of, out of ill motives. And yet God used it to bring about the salvation of the world. Some have said, well, these were Jewish herdsmen and, and people, uh, the, the Jews owned these pigs. And so this was a judgment of Christ upon the Jews for owning pigs. I'm not so convinced about that. I, I don't know if the man was Jewish or Gentile or if these were owned by Jews or, or Gentiles. It doesn't say. So I, I think it's not good to, good to speculate. But I think that what is clear from this passage is that it does show the great destruction that these demons were capable of. That these demons, if they could have, would have killed this man in an instant. That they would have much rather drowned the man than the pigs. We see in Mark chapter 9 the story of of the demon-possessed boy. That the father says that the demon often throws him into the fire and often throws him into the water seeking to destroy him. And here we have very clear, manifest, visible um, demonstration of what these demons would have sought to have done and would have loved to have done if the power of God had allowed it. That even in the possession of this man, we see the mercy of God in restraining these demons from doing what they would have liked. We have to remember that, that the devils are God's devils, that the demons are God's demons. He is in control. He is in control of all things and nothing can happen outside of his permissive will. We see that in the book of Job that Satan had to ask God for permission. We see it in Simon where Jesus said, Simon, Simon, the devil has asked to sift you as wheat. And Jesus gave permission. And he gave permission here. And he used it in a way that is marvelous. Because he used it to demonstrate not only to the herdsmen, not only to this man, but to all the country, his great power and his great mercy. And you know, sometimes the Lord will do that. Sometimes the Lord will bring about loss to get our attention. Sometimes we will lose a job, lose a fortune, lose a loved one. The Lord will do what it takes to get our attention. And he did what it took to get the attention of these men. Because I wonder if these pigs had never run down the hill, if these herdsmen would have ran into the town. If they would have gone and reported in the town all that had happened. If the men would have even come out to see what had happened. But we see that the Lord uses the evil of these demons for his own purposes and for his own good. But we also ought to see here, family of God, that Jesus not only released this man from his foe, from the destruction that he is facing, but you should remember that if you are in Christ, he has done the same thing for you. As I mentioned, you might not be possessed by a legion, 
but each and every one of you at one point in time by nature were children of wrath. You were subject to the prince and the power of the air. You were slaves of sin. You were slaves of the devil. And Jesus released you that you might not have been subject to being thrown into a fire or into the sea on this, this earth, but you were headed into destruction in the world to come, that you were headed into the lake of fire and brimstone, perhaps not the lake of Gennesaret, perhaps not the lake of Galilee, but the lake of fire and brimstone, that the Lord, just as he delivered this man, has delivered you. He has delivered you from a formidable foe. He has delivered you from a great destruction. We ought to remember that. We have to remember his great mercy. Well, as I said, the Lord used this in the life of, of this land, in the life of these men, to report his great mercy, to show his great mercy, that it might be reported and it might be spread abroad. And we see that as we move into the third point here in verses 14 to 20. First, we see it was reported by the herdsmen. So the herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion. And they became frightened. So these herdsmen, as soon as the pigs ran down into the sea, as soon as they were drowned, they ran away. They ran to the city. No doubt because they didn't want to be charged with losing an entire herd of pigs. And so they wanted to tell the, the, the owners of the pigs, come out, your, your entire herd has, has, has died. Come and see what has happened. I wonder too if they could see from the distance, if, if the demoniac and, and Jesus could have seen the pigs and the herds at the distance. I wonder if they could have seen Jesus and the demoniac from the distance. I wonder if they could have seen Jesus and his small fleet coming up uh, to, uh, to, this, to this port and they thought, man, this guy must not from be, be from around here if he's going to land his boat there. Don't, doesn't he know that the demoniac's over there? I remember my friend telling me a story of being in St. Louis and it was just, sun was just steadying and it was starting to get dark and he's at the gas station and the guy came out from the gas station and said, you must not be from around here. He said, why not? He said, you shouldn't be out after dark in these parts. You, you, you gas up and you get on. I wonder if these herdsmen saw Jesus coming from the distance and, 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 and saw that, that Jesus was landing in this place with the demoniac. I wonder if they saw all that happened, but no doubt they couldn't have heard it. They were far enough away that they couldn't have heard it. All they saw was the pigs going down. So now they go and they get the, the people from the city, they get the people from the country, and they come and they hear the report. They see this man and they observe him, this very man who had the legion, this very man who is an absolute lunatic, a crazy person. And now it says that he is sitting down. Luke adds that he's sitting at the feet of Christ. He has assumed the posture of a disciple. This man who was once a slave of Satan is now a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. This man who had never had rest, complete and total restlessness, is now resting at the feet of Christ. This man who was once naked is now clothed. And this man who was once clearly insane, screaming in the tombs, is in his right mind. This is what the men of the country observe. It's a great picture of what happens in conversion, isn't it? That we who have been converted come to Christ. We sit at his feet. We are clothed in his righteousness. We are given a new mind, a new nature. And we are changed in an instant, in a moment. 
Well, it says that their reaction is that they became afraid. Remember, I told you the parallel between this and the calming of the sea. Then in the calming of the sea, they were greatly afraid of the storm. And then Jesus calmed the storm, and they became greatly afraid of Jesus. Think of the story of Jonah, the same thing. They're greatly afraid of the storm. They throw Jonah in. It becomes perfectly calm, and they become greatly afraid of Yahweh. They become greatly afraid of the God of Jonah. And now here they have been all these years tormented by this demoniac, tormented by the legion, and they were greatly afraid to even pass by that way. And now they see him, and they become greatly afraid of Jesus. This is a common response, brothers and sisters, when we encounter the holy. When the sinful encounters the holy, we become afraid. Certainly they understood the power of Jesus that must have been in Jesus to be able to overcome this man. They would have known the legion that that was in this man, and they would have known simply by the sheer number of pigs that were destroyed that there was a great host in this man. And they they would have known that a great power was amongst them. Fear is common. In the presence of God, we saw it in Moses where he said that he was exceedingly afraid and that he was in fear and trembling. Isaiah was afraid. Ezekiel was afraid. Daniel was afraid. All of these men, Habakkuk said his very bones quaked. John fell down as a dead man. That it's a common response when the unholy encounters the holy is to become afraid. And then those who were there began to describe in verse 16 what had happened. It says, those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. So the swine herds would have been able to report what happened to the swine in terms of going into the, into the sea, but they wouldn't have been able to report exactly what transpired at, at, at the site of, of this interaction with the legion. And so now these other people begin to describe to those in the city what happened. Perhaps it was the disciples, perhaps it was the other people that came with Jesus in the boat, but they're reporting to these people, the great mercy of the Lord and how he had mercy upon this man. But you know what's amazing is their response in verse 17. It says, And they began to implore him to leave their region. An amazing response. Here Jesus had shown great mercy to this man. He had indeed shown great mercy to them and that he had relieved their region of this terror. And yet they asked Jesus to leave. They wanted nothing to do with him. They just wanted him to go away. Why? Why would these men respond in such a strange manner? Some have suggested it's because they were lovers of money. They were angry over the pigs. And they were afraid that they were going to lose more in the presence of Christ. Now we know from Scripture that there are certainly circumstances where men love riches more than Christ. Jesus speaks of the seed that has been sown amongst the thorns and that the thorns choke it out. The love of riches and the love of this life and the love of this world choke the seed so that it doesn't produce fruit. Jesus has said you cannot serve God and wealth. We know that there are many who go the way of the world and choose wealth over Christ. We think of the parable where Jesus had invited all the people to the wedding feast. And people began to make excuses saying, I have to do this or that. I cannot come. And there are many people who refuse to come. But I don't think that's what's going on here. I think what's going on here, and we know because Luke tells us what's going on here, is he tells us that the reason that they asked him to leave is because they were absolutely terrified. That fear had overcome them. That they had become gripped by fear and they wanted nothing to do with Christ. And I've told you that that is a common response. We see it illustrated in Peter. 
You remember in, in Peter, there was the, the miracle not of the, the destruction of material gain, but in the, uh, the, the, the gaining of material gain, when all of the fish jumped into the boat, as it were, where Jesus gave him so many, so many fish that he had to call his companions, and they, their boat began to sink. And what did Peter tell Jesus? Do you remember? He said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. That there's something where we encounter the holy, where we encounter the holiness of God, when we encounter the holiness of Christ, it makes us uncomfortable. It makes us acutely aware of our sin. Now, thankfully, the Lord did not heed Peter. He did not listen to him. That he allowed Peter to stay with him, and he stayed with Peter. But he did honor these men's request, and he left. He left these men. It's perhaps the saddest thing in the passage much sadder than the demoniac, much sadder than the pigs. Because these men could not get past Christ as judge. All they could do in Christ was see his power to condemn. All they could see was his power to judge. They failed to see the whole point of the passage. They failed to see the whole point of the account. They failed to see the mercy of Christ. They failed to see the mercy of God. They failed to see his mercy in delivering the most miserable of sinners. They failed to see that if he could do it for the demoniac, he can do it for me. If he's willing to do it for the demoniac, he's willing to do it for me. That Jesus displayed his great mercy in saving the worst of sinners, the most miserable of sinners. But yet these men couldn't look past that. All they could do was see Christ as judge. And so they asked him to leave. And he did. And as he was getting in the boat, we see this great contrast between them and the demoniac because where they wanted him to go away the demoniac wanted to be with christ it is a sign and token of salvation family of god that if you have been saved that you will want to be with christ if all you can think of christ is that he makes you uncomfortable that you want him to be away from you so you can continue in your sin that you don't like his gaze upon you because of your sin then you're in a bad place you have failed to see the mercy of christ as this demoniac did, and he wanted to go with Christ, but the Lord did not permit him. But he told him to go home. I love this. Remember, this is the main point of the whole passage, is the, is the mercy of the Lord exhibited here. He tells him to go home to your own people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy upon you. It's interesting that he tells him to go home. I don't know if any of you have ever had a close friend or a family member dive deep, deep into sin, perhaps into drug addiction. Simone and I know, unfortunately, many people, some close to home, uh, some within our, our, our greater family, some even within uh, acquaintances who have been addicted to drugs, addicted to pills, addicted to heroin. I've seen people lose their jobs. I've seen people lose their families. I've seen people lose their husband. I've seen people lose their children. I've seen people lose their freedom. I've seen people lose their entire life over drugs. And can you imagine that if the Lord delivered them, what a blessing it would be for, the, for them to return back to their family. It's strange to think, but this man could have been a father. He was someone's son. He was someone's brother. He was someone's cousin. And here the Lord in his mercy says, go back to your family. Go back to them. He returns this man to his family. 
We see the great mercy that the Lord displayed not only in delivering him, not only to this man, but we see it to his family and that he delivered this man and sent him home. And this man went back to his family and he reported the great things that he had done. And he not only did that, but it says that he went all through Decapolis, the ten cities on the east side of the, on the, east side of the Jordan, on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, telling of the great things that the Lord had done for him. And it says that all were absolutely amazed. Later on, we read in Mark chapter 7 that Jesus came and ministered in this area. It's one other way that we see the mercy of Christ here, that where these men had rejected him, where these men had said, leave our country, leave us alone, he didn't leave them alone. He left them with a minister. He left them with an evangelist. He left them with a man to go throughout their land and proclaim the glories of Christ and the greatness of his mercy. Well, family of God, we've seen in this passage, I hope, the great mercy of our Lord. We've seen it in that he delivered this man from his misery. This man was, who was miserable in so many ways. We saw it in that we, he delivered him from a formidable foe and from a great destruction. And we see his mercy in that he allowed his, the, the report of it to be spread far and wide. And as we Wrap up this morning. I just want to go back one more time to verse 17. I want to draw your attention one more time to verse 17. It says, when they began to implore him to leave their region. I just want to do some some soul searching, some heart searching this morning and ask you, how do you view Christ? Like these men, can you only see him as judge? Can, do, you, do you struggle to get past the, 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 the picture of Christ as an all-consuming judge? Are you like Luther who says, love God, sometimes I hate him because all I can do is see him as judge. All I can do is see him staring down upon me and staring upon my sin. Are you like these men? If so, listen to this passage. Don't be like them. See the mercy of the Lord. Look, if God can deliver this demoniac, he can deliver you too. He cares. He cares that you are perishing. He cares that you are bound by sin and headed for destruction. He cares so much that he died on a cross to save you from the very hell that you are headed towards. Now, if I could suggest to you, if you are a Christian this day and you are struggling to see the mercy of God, if you struggle to, to view God as merciful, that perhaps one of the reasons why is because unlike this demoniac, you have ceased to tell people about the great things that the Lord has done for you. You have ceased to tell people about his mercy. You know, there's something very practical about sharing the gospel with people in a way that testifies about what he has done for you. You know, so many times we share the gospel and we just tell people what God can do for them. And there's nothing wrong with that. Hear me, there's nothing wrong with that. But there's something about telling others what he has done for you of testifying what he has done for you that resonates and is powerful and it reminds us of God's great mercy in our own lives. And I know this is difficult because we often like to, to forget. We just want to forget our past. We want to forget our dark days. But you know, God would not have us to do that. He tells us in the book of Ephesians that those of us who were Gentiles, who were at one time separated from God, and one time were without Christ, were without hope, that we should not forget, that we should remember that that was our original state. Because it helps us to remember the mercy of God. 
You know, the, the, the whole Feast of Passover, that it's designed to cause the people to remember their bondage, to remember that they were slaves in Egypt, to remember that there was a time when they were miserable and that the Lord in his mercy with a strong hand delivered them out, that the Lord would have us remember his mercy. But I know sometimes it's also hard because of the shame involved in, in sharing our testimony. I wonder if this legion, 10, 15, 20 years from this time, became an upstanding member in society. Maybe he had more children. Maybe he had a, a business. The terror of the tombs was long forgotten. The legend of the legion was a memory of distant past. And, and I wonder if he started to felt shame about telling people about his dark days of, of demon possession. I'll give him a benefit of the doubt. I think he continued to proclaim the, the glories and the mercy of Christ throughout his days. But I can tell you, brothers and sisters, this is a struggle for me. This is a struggle for me. I, when, I'm, I'm preaching to myself here. I'm, I'm speaking to myself. Many of you know that when the Lord found me, I was in chains. I was incarcerated. I was in a, a, a boot camp for juvenile delinquents. I was a terror to society. I was a menace to society. There were chains that, that couldn't keep me. I was completely out of control. I was untamable. I was violent. I was gang-related. But the Lord delivered me. And I don't like to talk about it. Here I am in public. I know that it's on YouTube. It's going to go on YouTube. It's going to be on Sermon Audio. This is being recorded. I have kids at home that are watching this. Thankfully, I've already told them about it, so they're not learning anything new. There's going to be no shock here. But, you know, it's uncomfortable to have to speak about, about our past and about how the Lord has worked in our lives. But, you know, brothers and sisters, there's such a, a practical benefit to it because, it, for one, it, it keeps us humble. It keeps us humble to remember our beginnings. But as I mentioned before, it also reminds us of the mercy of the Lord. It puts his mercy on display. And look, I didn't want this final exhortation to be about evangelism because I, I, I I, it's not what the passage is about. The passage is about the mercy of the Lord. But I, I want to tell you that there is a practical aspect about telling other people about the mercy of the Lord because it reminds you of his mercy to you. So if you're struggling this day to see his mercy... Perhaps go and tell someone else about how he has been merciful to you. There's a thousand other ways you can remember the mercy of the Lord. It's not just through evangelism, but that is the main thing I want you to take from this text, that the Lord is merciful. He delivered this man, he can deliver you. No matter how wretched you are, no matter how sinful you are, he can deliver you. He delivered me, he can deliver you. I assure you of that. Look, there is a fear of God that is honoring to him. And there's a fear of God that is dishonoring to him. Do not be guilty of the latter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, we do see your great mercy in delivering sinners, delivering the most miserable of sinners. Father, we're so thankful that you see us in our misery, that you see us in our plight. Father, that you did not leave us alone, that you sent your Son to become one of us, to humble himself, to die for us at such a great cost, to redeem us from a formidable foe. Father, none of us on our own could free ourselves from the prince of the power of the air. None of us could free ourselves from Satan. It took your power. It took your mercy. It took your grace. Father, none of us could free ourselves from hell, but you accomplished what we could not accomplish. We thank you, Father, for your mercy. 
I pray for your people this day. Father, I know at times in life it's hard to see your mercy. We're so conscious of our sins. We're so conscious of our wretchedness. And it makes us uncomfortable. But Father, help us once again through this passage, through this message, to see your great mercy, to see the sweetness of it, to see your willingness to save, to see that you do care that we are perishing and that you are willing to act. You are willing to exhibit great power to deliver us and that you are willing to forgive all of our sins. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's close out our time singing, Take My Life and Let It Be, the 